Would you please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 13 to 17. We are studying through the book of 1 Corinthians. It is is very appropriate to our day and age, and specifically to the community of Bloomington with Indiana University. Being the institution whose shadow we live and exist under or within. And we're to verse 13. This is the second week we have come to this text. Let us hear the word of God, which is eternally true. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, this is our second week studying this text, and this week we'll turn to the second half of the passage, but first a reminder of the context, the larger area surrounding what we're going to study. It begins with Paul asking three rhetorical questions. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And the answer is expected, it's assumed, and that answer is no. Christ has not, he cannot be divided. Paul was not crucified for the Corinthians, and they were not baptized into Paul's name. So the answers are no, no, and no. The only answers any sane person could give. The Corinthians were splitting into factions, they were dividing And so he points them back to the fact that Jesus Christ is one and that he is their Lord, he is their Savior, and he can't be split up so that part of him is champion for this party and another part champion for another party. If it's contrary to the nature of a marriage and household to be split up, how much more is it contrary to the name and to the nature of the body of Christ, the church, to be split up? The head of the body is one, and so the members of the body, the parts of the body, are one also. Christ has not been divided. He cannot be divided. Paul was not crucified for them. It was Jesus Christ. They were not baptized into the name of Paul. They were baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that Son is Jesus Christ. They were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He is our only Savior and Lord. Now, we move on at this point, and we find that Paul continues on this theme for a little while longer. Not only were they not baptized into the name of the Apostle Paul, but he himself didn't baptize them. And if he didn't baptize them, why would anyone have baptized them into his name? They would have baptized them into their names. Beyond the matter of the name used for baptism, the Apostle Paul now goes on to speak of the question of who did the job. Who baptized them? 
And the Apostle Paul writes in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. And so the Apostle Paul views it as a kindness, God's providence, that none but a very few there in Corinth can claim he baptized them. Crispus and Gaius alone. Oh, and then this correction. Okay, now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. In other words, very few, almost none. There were a few others, but almost none. And then verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Now, how could the Apostle Paul say this? That Christ did not send him to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Or maybe more to the point, how could this be true? That Jesus Christ did not send the Apostle Paul, the Apostle, to the Gentiles to baptize. Wasn't baptizing at the very heart of the Great Commission given to all the Apostles? When Jesus said at the end of the Gospel of Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so there it is. It's plain as can be. Go. Make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. But the first thing to notice right here is that it's the going and making disciples that have primacy in the Great Commission. It's not the baptizing and the teaching. Baptizing and teaching are subordinate commands given as an extension or a filling out of the first commands to go and to make disciples. In other words, baptizing and teaching obedience are the ways to carry out making disciples. Put another way, baptizing and teaching obedience are the ways we carry out the first command. The first command under which baptism and teaching are subordinate. And that first command is go make disciples. And if we look at other places in Scripture, we see the primary means used by the Holy Spirit to make disciples is the preaching of the gospel. This last week we had a funny exchange in the elders meeting where um, there was a discussion about um, a need. And in the middle of the need, somebody made a comment about professions and professionals. And by professions and professionals, what that person meant were dentists and doctors and lawyers. Right? And immediately, I felt the insult to my profession. And I said, oh, three professions, huh? How about Tim and Stephen and David? What do professionals do? Well, what professionals are supposed to do is they're supposed to profess certain standards. And then they are supposed to rule those who practice their profession by those standards. In other words, when it comes to a professional, 
You're supposed to have certain commitments that make you certain if you buy their services that you will get safety. So Mary Lee and I are building a house and I made the mistake of telling a man that I was planning on using a certain individual to do my heating, my plumbing, and my electrical work. And the man I made the mistake of saying that to was an electrician. And, oh, did I catch it. Tim, you're not serious. Well, what do you mean I'm not serious? You're not serious. You can't really be telling me. So he's, 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 he's able to do all three, right? Yeah, what's wrong with that? So one man is able to professionalize in heating and cooling and plumbing and electrical. He does all of them, right? Well, yeah, that, that's what I was planning to do. Tim, I professionalize in electrical work. And I'm beginning to get acclimated to this issue. It was an insult to him to think that somebody who was primarily an HVAC man would be able to be my electrical man. Do you understand that? Why? Well, because HVAC men have their professionalization, their standards, their objective standards that make you safe hiring them to do your heating and cooling. But they're not electricians. Electricians professionalize in electrical work. Now, there, there is plumbing for an HVAC, and there is electrical work for an HVAC, but his orientation is heating and cooling. Well, then you move over into electrical work, and yes, there can be plumbing and electrical work. If you put up conduit pipes, right? Okay. And if you go in the middle to, to plumbing, yes, there can be electrical work in plumbing, Right? So what is a profession? A profession is where you have standards, you take pride in your standards, and you're able to sell your services based on you being in submission to your standards. And so a professional, somebody who professionalizes in medicine or dentistry or the law or plumbing or electrical, a professional, somebody that professionalizes in them, is somebody that believes in them, right? And so if you're building a house and you're thinking, well, you know, I might not have any electricity. Well, you would go to an electrician and say, why should I have electricity? Because it would save me a lot of money. <laughs> By the way, you'll be happy to know that we ended up cutting off the electrical work from the HVAC man and gave it to that man. <laughs> now, listen, why am I going off on this tangent, right? What on earth does this text have to do with electricians? Well, here's the deal. I'm a professional. And what do I professionalize in? Well, I professionalize in being a pastor, a shepherd. And there are two things shepherds do. They teach and preach, and they discipline. And by discipline, I don't mean scourge. I mean they correct, they rebuke, they exhort with great patience. So shepherds feed and discipline, protect, all right? And so shepherds, pastors, should believe in the necessity of you as a soul 
being cared for, protected, rebuked, exhorted, and they should believe in preaching. It's like an electrician that doesn't believe in electricity. It's like a plumber that doesn't believe in water. (laughs) And so when I went into ministry, I didn't believe in preaching. I did not believe in preaching, if you can imagine that. I went in the ministry, and I thought that preaching was something that professionals did that made people feel like they'd gotten something when they came to worship, but that the real change in people's lives happened through small groups. Because up until that point in my life, I had never had good preaching. None. And I, you've heard me say that the church Mary Lee and I grew up in, every single sermon, every single Sunday was regeneration, John 3.16. Every single text of Scripture was John 3.16. In the beginning, God created, for God so loved the world, you know, And then moving on in our lives, it got better from there. But I remember sitting in church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday in junior high and high school thinking, I've heard somewhere something about a doctrine called sanctification. And I'm in bondage to my sin, and I love Jesus, and I believe in the cross. But I don't know what to do about my sin. Would you please tell me? I mean, that's really what I thought in junior high and high school. But every Sunday, it was for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Nothing ever about sanctification. Just grace, 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 grace. Nothing about holiness. Ever. Nothing about taking up your cross. Ever. Just grace. And so I didn't believe in preaching. So one day I was talking to my dad and I said, you know, dad, I don't really believe in preaching. And here I am. I've been set apart by the laying on of hands in prayer to preach the gospel. And so you know what my dad did? He wrote an article to me. And if you want to read that article, I have a book. You can find it. And the article was about the power of preaching. Now, remember how I was telling you how men professionalize in something And then if you ever tell them that something isn't needed, boy, are they hot. All right? But, you know, I tell doctors I prefer to get my medicine from the Internet and nurses and pharmacists. (laughs) Because I'm so smart. And so if you look at preaching today... What you'll find is that people don't think they need preaching because they've become acclimated to preaching just being grace, 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 grace. Just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and then die quickly. Because it's done. And then go out and find other people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and may they die quickly. And so today, there's no expectation, none for preaching, absolutely none. 
And so what happens? Well, the minute you have a vacuum, what happens? Nature abhors it. And so what goes into the vacuum? Always the sacraments. No, 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 no. Here we are. Listen, I'm not being funny. It's an evil thing. But it is funny. I mean, if you think, no preaching, what's going to happen? Liturgy and sacraments. And so you go into any Roman Catholic church, any Roman Catholic church, and what will you find? Guarantee it. I had a man that I believe knew Jesus Christ intimately and was saved. He was a Jesuit priest. If I ever talked about Scripture to him, you know, he was probably 65 at the time and I was 30. If I ever talked to him about Scripture, do you know what he would say to me? He would say to me, Tim, I'm ashamed to admit it, but I do not know the Bible. And he was one of the best And so you look at the Roman Catholic Church today, what's the center of the Roman Catholic Church? The sacraments. That's why they had to voluminate them to seven. Not one, not two, but three, four, five, six, seven. The more, the better, because the more sacraments there are, what? Well, the more sacraments there are, the more you are dependent upon the church for your salvation and dependent upon her physical actions. Because that's what a sacrament is. It's physical actions. All right? Then you go into the Lutheran church. I spent a good bit of time this last week with uh, with another pastor talking to somebody who's... who's um, talking to somebody who was being told by their Missouri Synod Lutheran whatever that if they continued to consume the preaching of this church that they would get no more money. Except it was more explicit than that. In other words, I'm being tactful. Why? Because we don't practice the sacraments correctly. And therefore, if that person continued to consume our preaching, that person would place in jeopardy the soul of that person's children. Okay? Okay? If you don't have preaching, what do you have? You've got sacraments. And the sacraments voluminate. And they grow and they grow and they grow because there's no preaching. And so all of evangelicalism today is running to the sacraments. They're running to orthodoxy and its icons and sacraments. They're running to Roman Catholicism. They're running into Lutheranism. And there's no preaching. If I were to go around here and ask how many of you have been under good preaching, my guess is that probably 75% of you would say that your life has been spent hungering for the pure milk of the word from the pulpit. 
There's a certain pastor I'm consistently critical of publicly because he's one of the best-known pastors in the world today. And people have a fit that I'm critical of him. But I know from souls who have left this church and gone to that man's church that that man, for instance, one of his pastoral staff members told me a few weeks ago that in 10 years of him being in this man's church, he never heard that man address homosexuality from his pulpit. Never! Ten years! And he's a paragon of preaching. (laughs) Boggles my mind. Now, I admit to you that I'm not polished. You know, I admit I go over time. I admit my congregation's small. I admit that sometimes if you're in the front row, you'll get sprayed with my saliva. Now, what does this have to do with anything? The Apostle Paul says that Jesus Christ did not send him to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And when the gospel is preached, brothers and sisters, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Because it is the power of God. To all who believe. And so, because I've been set apart to the ministry of the word and sacrament, and because I was getting paid, I began to preach. And my first inclination that maybe preaching was something larger than the sum total of the parts was when I preached on Titus 2. You know how sometimes it takes the negative for you to see the positive? Well, think of sacraments, all of you who are Baptists, and you don't ever want to say that anything spiritual, no grace, is communicated with sacraments, right? I mean, it's just a memorial, right? Until you read the Apostle Paul saying, because of this, some of you are sick and others of you have died, all in a sleep. And then you think, oh, oh, maybe something more is going on. Well, the Sunday I preached on Titus 2, where it talks about older women teach younger women. And I got to the text where it says, teach the younger women to submit to their husbands, to be domestic, so that the word of God will not be maligned. And I went for it. I mean, I thought it was pertinent. (laughs) You know, I thought it was applicable. You know, I thought maybe it had something of God for us today. What an idiot I was. Because afterward, all hell broke loose. Because Satan hates women. And he hates life and he hates the Christian home. He hates it. And Satan doesn't want women submitting to their husbands, loving their husbands. He does not want women committed to the home. And so what amazed me was it was the most godly women of that church who attacked me after I preached the sermon. And, you know, I I hadn't been prepared for that. They never told me in seminary that if you preach the word of God, that it's more powerful than a two-edged sword. I just knew that it was inerrant. (laughs) I didn't know it had authority. (laughs) I was an idiot, a Gideon. 
And so I spent that week going from house to house, placating and weebling and cajoling. As every young man will do when older women are mad. I'd learned well from my mother, right? And then I went to one house where the offense was. All the other women had pointed to one woman and said, she works full time. And how dare you hurt her? We're committed to this. But you preach it and she, think of that poor, you, you. I said, well, I'll go visit her. So I went and visited her. And you know what I found? You, You know what I found. You know what I found, right? You know it. I went to that woman and I found out that she worked full time and wasn't able to be a mother and wasn't able to be domestic because her husband made her. And she grieved every single day. And then I thought, oh, I get it. The real problem here is not the woman who works, because every woman who works wants to be with her children. The real problem is the women who resent that they're home with their children. (laughs) And I learned the power of the gospel. And you say, well, that's not the gospel. And I say, really? So in other words, women who have turned their back on their wombs and their breasts and their husbands and their homes, and you bring to them the liberating command of God that says older women who are mothers in the church are to teach younger women who are daughters in the church to be devoted to their husbands, devoted to their home, to love their children, to submit to their husbands. And you're going to tell me that's not the gospel to a feminist? If that's not the gospel, what is? Well, how about this one? Don't slaughter your unborn children. Is that the gospel? Well, no, Tim, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus died on the cross. I say, well, why do I need him? (laughs) What utility is that? I don't feel the need for anybody to die on the cross for me. Why should I need Jesus? And they say to me, well, don't you feel that there's something missing in your life? No! (laughs) Well, wouldn't you like to be all you're meant to be? No! Well, do you really have your best life now? Yes! When the Bible tells us that the unborn Jesus leapt in the womb of his mother, or that the unborn John the Baptist leapt in the womb of his mother on recognizing Jesus in the womb, that's the gospel to a feminist who's killed her unborn child. Because she sees why she lives in grief. She sees why she's cutting her wrists. She understands why she's filled with self-loathing. And then you read to her, speak to Jerusalem, 
that she has received double for all her sins. A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain brought low. Prepare the way for the Lord. And then he's high and lifted up and his blood flows to cleanse us from all our sin. And the Bible says that he will take our sins, which are as scarlet. And what is the scarlet? Right there in the text, it says it's the bloodshed of innocence. He takes our sins, which are as scarlet, and he makes them as white as snow. The the woman who has killed her unborn child and the man who has paid for it, they come to Jesus Christ through hearing from the proclamation of the word of God that John the Baptist left in the womb of his mother on recognizing Jesus in the womb. And then they hear the gospel. They're ready for it. Every single doctrine of Scripture which leads us to see our sin is gospel. And it leads us to plead for mercy. And then we see Christ high and lifted up on a cross. And then we fall on our faces in front of Him. And we say, I am a sinner. Woe is me. I'm undone. And He says, I have come to save sinners. But we've had preaching. We've heard we're sinners. We've heard abortion is an abomination before God. We've heard that our desire to have sex with people of the same sex is an abomination before God. We've heard that God calls mothers to be devoted to their home, to be submissive to their husband. And then we know that our rebellious hearts against our husband are evil and we bring all of it to the cross. Every single bit of it. And faithful preachers do what? Faithful preachers awaken us to our sin. And we are all together in our sin. He's not righteous and we're sinners. He is a man just like us. And he opens scripture and the holiness of God. And the the unbelievable intensity of the law of God. And we're destroyed in our self-righteousness and liberality and diversity and pluralism and tolerance. We're destroyed in it. And then, together, level ground under the cross. Level ground. We're all down on our knees. We're on our knees. The lauded professor... And Taylor, and men and women, and boys and girls, they're at the same place. In Christ, there's neither professors nor nor tobacco chewing. There's neither pastors nor there's there's neither male nor there's not slave there's not boss. There's not union, man. There's not management. Everything is under the cross because the preaching of God has destroyed our self-righteousness so that all of us are facing only Jesus Christ. High and lifted up, and his train fills the temple. Paul says what? What does Paul say? He says, I what? 
He says, I am not called to baptize. But what? To preach the gospel. And every single time, you have all kinds of rabbit foot talk about the sacraments and the liturgy, and we're all so precious. The reason that's there is because the preaching of the gospel has been absolutely eviscerated of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's because you have cowards in the pulpit, and cowards always go to rituals and ceremonies because you can, you can turn on the lights and turn off the lights and take them into the water and pull them out of the water and, and pass the cup and bring the cup back and break up the bread and read the words, and it's just so easy to jack God around. But when you preach, you have to be a fool. And who wants to be a fool if you're a professional? I thought this was a status thing. I didn't get on board for being a fool. I read from a manuscript. I don't want to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. I don't want to, like, spray people in the front row with my saliva. I don't want people leaving hating me. If I read from a manuscript, it's so much safer. Because I have time to think how inopportune that would be. And how politically incorrect that would be. And how so-and-so would misunderstand this. And... On and on it goes. And the Holy Spirit's gone because you've got a professional in the pulpit. And he professionalizes in what? What does he professionalize in? What? Cleverness of speech. See? You're getting there. You. Yeah. That's exactly right. He specializes in rhetoric and poetry and shaggy dog stories and intricate discussions of the efficacy of sacraments. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says in our text, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. You know what this means? This means that if you leave a sermon impressed with the rhetoric and the organization and the erudition and the vocabulary, you have not heard the gospel Never has been there, there been a collected works of the Apostle Paul sermons. And if you read his letters and try to figure out where the sermon starts and stops, you don't know. And if you look at the kind of things he says in those letters, you think, well, that can't be preaching. That has to be some private communication because no preacher would ever say, why don't they just cut it all off? Or... All my righteousness is, and the word is excrement. 
Have you ever heard the word excrement in a pulpit? There it is, in the word of God for all generations to read. Well, that can't be a sermon. (laughs) Because sermons are safe. After all, the whole purpose of sermons is to protect the congregation from the humiliating ministry of the Holy Spirit. I mean, how long do you think you're going to get paid if you keep preaching like this, Tim? And so my whole ministry, I have seen people die and get sick because of coming to the Lord's Supper in rebellion. And I have seen souls saved because of the stupidity of this jar of clay. And it is, I promise you, it is always a complete mystery to me how God ever uses me to bring eternal life to you, to bring holiness to you. And you want to know why your preachers never have people live in their homes? You want to know why? Because in the pulpit, they're clean. And so they have a lot to hide. Want to know why the church isn't intimate? Because if elders were ever to display their temper to you, well, then you would no longer have them up on a pedestal. And we can't have that. And so the whole church today has become a shell game to deny God of the very things that he has commanded she give him. We make a big show, Kierkegaard says, if we hear God likes nuts. And so we get all the empty shells we can come up with, just tons of them, semis bringing in empty shells, and we make a big show of giving God nuts. And every single shell is empty. There's not a bite in them for him. But oh boy, shells and shells and more shells. And Kierkegaard says, so the church today has, he says, now mind you, Christianity is supposed to be the most mortal wound that a man could ever receive. The preaching of the gospel is supposed to destroy us in a way that never have we been destroyed before. And he says, and then what we do is we go about our preaching in such a way as to remove all the danger, as to remove all the risk, as to be scrupulously clean until what you expect of a shopkeeper is what you expect of a preacher. That he's polite. And that he doesn't spray the front rows. And he says, and then we make it as if we are giving God what he's commanded, which is to be worshipped. And the only way you can worship God is coming to him with full confession of your sin. And how are you going to confess your sin if nobody preaches? How are you going to hear the gospel unless somebody preaches? And how is somebody going to preach unless they're sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news? <laughs> hey, people, I'm not a professional. I don't professionalize. Unless there is a profession that is known as being a fool for the sake of Jesus Christ. And then I professionalize. 
We're not professionals. Why? Because we don't want to eviscerate, we don't want to remove, we don't want to destroy the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you leave here thinking Tim's so good, Tim's so smart, Tim has such a vocabulary, Tim is a rhetorician. If you leave here impressed with me, I've utterly failed. But if you leave here thinking away with him, he must die. Then I'm beginning to resemble the Apostle Paul. <laughs> right? Come on, you got to admit it's true. Everywhere he went, that's the response. Let's pray.